Just a heads up, before you start listening, we want you to know that this podcast discusses personal experiences of sexual harassment, which may be triggering. It also contains legal information, which isn't intended as legal advice, but we have included lots of useful contacts and resources in our show notes to help you find the individual support you need. I think people aren't stepping forward, Penny, um, when they do have those kind of complaints in their workplaces and partially because they're not seeing that there's implications for bad behaviour. Now there's a point. Apart from the high-profile cases that have made the media, could you name a person or an organisation who's actually copped some consequences for sexual harassment? The stats tell us that one in three people have experienced sexual harassment. So unless there's just a few very busy perpetrators, it's very likely that we all know someone who's doing the harassing. But we never hear about anyone getting into trouble. Hey, it's Penny Terry here. And on this episode of Rule of Thumb, we are going to hear about the consequences. The voice you heard at the start of this episode is Yvette Seetel. She's the CEO of the Women's Legal Service Tasmania, and I had the same question for her. When have you seen it work out really badly for somebody who is harassing someone else? Um, I, I must say that most of the kind of cooler conversations that I've had over my kind of long career have been um, with other, well, with women who have had an experience of being sexually harassed at work, whether that's somebody standing too close, asking them inappropriate questions about their sex life, to um, people being sexually assaulted, you know, near the toaster while they're um, making their lunch or heating up their lunch. So there is the full gamut of behaviour that over my long career in the law I've heard uh, other women speak about, but none of those people um, have ever proceeded to put in an official complaint for fear of what might happen in terms of their career in a small place. Do we need to hear more about what the consequences can be? Uh, Reputational, embarrassment, public scrutiny, the actual cost for workplaces who need to go through some sort of negotiation process? Yes, I think that's a really good point. Penny, and I think part of the problem um, in Tasmania and in other jurisdictions as well has been the secrecy around the payments and the payouts. And I think what that's meant is that people haven't had a really clear understanding of what the implications for their behaviour would be. And I understand that the reason that's happened is because you want to protect the privacy of, um, you know, the victim survivor, for want of a better word, going through that process. But I actually think what it's done is meant that holding people uh, accountable has been more difficult. Yeah, it's tricky, right? While it's important, obviously, to focus on supporting the people who've been the target of sexual harassment or sexual assault, how do we do this while also showing people there are implications? Do you know what else is difficult? Getting someone who's been in trouble for this stuff to tell me about it on the record. But luckily, lawyers can. Before Elise Whitmore started at the Women's Legal Service, she had a case where she did see the implications. 
In this particular scenario, a man came for some legal advice, had been to a Christmas party, had drank a little bit, maybe too much, and had grabbed one of his colleagues or smacked her on the bum or something something like that. And he had come in for some legal advice because he didn't really understand that he was about to lose his job and why he was about to lose his job. And having to explain from first principles, you know, what sexual harassment is, the effect that it can have, and that the workplace in that situation has an obligation to make sure that their staff are safe, that the event that he attended was a work event, even though it was outside office hours and outside of the office, um, and that it was probable that what he had done was going to result in him losing his job. What were the main feelings, do you think, he was feeling in that moment when he was realising he may lose his job? He was embarrassed. I think there was a level of shame. There was a huge level of regret. He was also quite scared about the implications, not just of the loss of his employment, but what that might mean for finding future employment. Um, So the consequences for him were going to be enormous. feeling for this guy right now. I wonder if this is where all of our biases about this type of behaviour can start to creep in. Some of us will worry about the implications for him so much that it's become one of the reasons that people don't report sexual harassment, which is a problem because not their problem, right? And then on the other hand, these stories can act as a deterrent as people understand the personal consequences of being caught out. So let's get to understand them. We met Tom Windsor in episode one. He says he's no expert on this stuff, but he has been heavily involved with Movember for 20 years as a mental health advocate, where he's been part of heaps of very open conversations and heard just how damaging past behaviour can be. Incredibly damaging. No one wants to be shamed. No one, you know, people are embarrassed. If you're caught doing something wrong that you know is wrong, and and we've already said that if it's harmful or degrading, we know it's wrong. Um, So if you're called out for that, that, that's shameful and and for good reason. But often you you see it as anger as well. People who pride themselves on, on the way they conduct themselves and people who often spend a lot of their life doing doing good to then be tarnished and judged on single acts. The consequences are, are huge. What about impacts to mental health? Huge impacts. I mean, um, mental health is, is affected by so many things in our lives. Um, one of the, the the biggest elements of, of our mental health is is current stresses. Uh, that can be relationship stressors, that can be financial pressures, that can be workplace stresses, and similarly any any kind of incident or or trauma that someone's going through, whether or not uh, that might be grief or a broken heart or uh, allegations put to someone, um, it's going to negatively impact someone's mental health absolutely and and some people might say that that's part of doing the wrong thing if you do the wrong thing and you get caught then you've got to live with that and you've got to deal with that and then uh, come to terms with it and, and and be able to move on with their life and deal with their own mental health um, and I, I strongly believe this is a mental health issue 
And I, I say that because I'm really positive about the opportunity for change when it comes to men's health. Um, I've seen the great improvements we've, we've made in Australia uh, for men's mental health um, and men taking account for their own health, their own issues and their behaviour that goes with that. I, I think that we can make similar change, giving them the opportunity Yes, to take account for it. Yes, to acknowledge that it that it's not appropriate for this kind of behaviour anymore, but also provide an opportunity for change and for improvement. Have you thought about this? Whether or not this is a men's health issue, and if it is, whether we might see change quicker. If you've listened to our first two episodes, you'll remember Elle, who explained her experience of sexual harassment at uni. She has thought about this. I think it's really interesting when we think about it, we've got quite a lot of men who are, who are willing to stand up in public spaces to talk about, you know, men's mental health and, and this sort of thing. It, it seems to be far less inviting for men to um, want to be that public face of, you know, attitudinal changes towards gender or, or um, gender equality. So I think that what we need to do is develop forms of accountability for people that also allow people a, a way back in. And I'm not talking about violations that are crimes and, I'm, um, and I don't want to minimise my, my sort of experience. But I also think that, you know, a lot of the ways that we endeavour to hold people accountable at the moment, um, which, you know, is utterly what should happen, they generate backlash and that, that we also generate a lot of shame in people. Very often we, we don't see... Um, shifts in behaviour and I think there's you know, research into the impact of shame in those scenarios and how um, unfortunately they're, they're counter to kind of people coming to those um, actual shifts in, in, in their behaviour. But I also think of course like you know why should that be our priority <laughs> um, to, to manage the egos if you like of the, of the perpetrators as opposed to give victims of, of these kind of experiences an absolute right to, to be angry and to use their voices and to make this public. So how do we balance the need to make people accountable while also giving those who do the wrong thing a way back in and get a shift in behaviour? Alina Thomas is the CEO of Engender Equality, a support service in Tasmania that promotes the voices of victim survivors of gendered abuse. Look, what some people say, Penny, is that the culture will change when men start holding other men to account. So at the moment, the, the voices that we are that we're hearing from and the people who are who have been trying to raise this issue for many decades now are, are women. But what we see where the changes change can be led is that they're often male spaces um, where there isn't an accountability back to women, but the accountability is to peers. Um, while it's just women it, who, are, who are doing that work, it's not being, it doesn't get heard to the same degree. So there is definitely an invitation there for men to be a, a, as vocal as they possibly be, can because of the whole, um, you know, patriarchal system that we live in, they've got more credibility with their peers and with their mates than women do. If you're thinking, I've heard this all before, I wonder if you've really heard it before. Men calling out men. We're going to talk more about how we do this well next episode, 
But let's move away from the individual consequences to the organisational consequences. Well, you've got financial cost, obviously, if you're getting people um, to help you with it. You've got the risk of workers' comp claims too, um, with stress and all of that. But it's also the day-to-day cost as well. Oh, it's not looking good. This is Abby George. She is an industrial relations consultant with the Tasmanian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and she reviews and drafts policy in this area. She runs training for organisations, and she's done her fair share of internal investigations. And she's seen how sexual harassment rocks organisations. It's not just two people involved in this. It's everyone that's seen it, everyone that's heard it, everyone that's now going, oh, what's going on between those two? They're not talking. All of those types of things as well. But you've also got the risk of staff leaving. At the end of the day, your business is only as good as your staff. If you have a high level of turnover, that is a reflection on your business because those that are good staff um, will find other jobs. So why, why would they, you know, stay in a workplace that they're being subject to this behaviour to if they can just leave and, and go elsewhere? Are you making a list of these consequences? Of course, it can also be very expensive. Does that make it feel more wrong? For those playing along, you've met employment lawyer Henry Pill in episode one. And it's time to strap yourselves in as we unpack the legal costs for organisations who get this stuff wrong and the legal options for people who want to put things right. The most serious conduct in the sexual harassment space is often conduct that veers into the criminal. So we're talking about uh, a person making persistent, unwanted approaches uh, of a sexual nature at a person which converge into stalking. We're talking about a person sending repeated messages, engaging in um, unwanted approaches, engaging in unwanted touching, uh, which can uh, easily stray into what would be considered to be assault. When people are doing this, are they even thinking about the consequences? Well, I think that underneath that, there's an assumption. Um, when a person is behaving in a manner which is going to marginalise someone, which is going to discriminate against someone, which is going to harass someone, they're probably doing it on the basis that they think they can get away with it. Henry, if I come to you and I've got a complaint about sexual harassment, what are are my options in front of me? Yeah, look, uh, the law in in Australia as far as sexual harassment is concerned is contained in a a range of of different legislative instruments. Some of them are specific to states and territories, some of them are Commonwealth laws, some of them are specific to what happens in workplaces and some of them prohibit um, sexual harassment and discrimination more generally. So at the top level we have the Sex Discrimination Act nationally, then we've got the Fair Work Act which specifically governs workplaces Uh, and then from state to state we have anti-discrimination laws uh, or equal opportunity laws which prohibit conduct generally right across the board. So I come to you, we have a chat, I explain what's been going on for me. What do you do then as the lawyer to work out which bit of all of that legislation you're going you're to use or you're going to look at for this? I think that it, it really depends on a context and often in the work that I do we're dealing with a workplace context. Uh, generally we're dealing with a person who's in an employment relationship uh, who has been the subject of conduct which is either sexual harassment or discrimination. 
and who wants it to knock off, uh, who wants it to finish, uh, and who wants some protection for it ever happening again. Or sometimes we're dealing with people who have exited their employment or who are on the way out of their employment. They've been harassed, they've been discriminated against, and they want some type of uh, remedy, compensation, restitution or cultural change within the organisation that that they've been subjected to this stuff in. And depending on where people are at and what they want, uh, there are generally a range of different different options and different remedies that we might try. Uh, Some of them might be as simple as assisting a person through a internal investigation process, helping them tell their side of the story to their employer. Some of them may be helping a person through a discrimination claim where they feel that their their employment has been damaged or their career has been damaged by virtue of the discrimination. And some of it might be a full-blown sexual harassment litigation where we're seeking some compensation for a person uh, who's either had their employment ended or their career ended or their or who suffered significant damage um, as a result of being subject to that kind of conduct. And there are a lot of mechanisms that we can use to help people find a way through as lawyers. We've got a barrage of different uh, statutory and regulatory weapons at our disposal. It might be a, a question of, to, to um, paraphrase a former US president, speaking softly and carrying a big stick. Uh, Organisations need to be uh, made to understood sometimes that if they don't do the right thing, the cost of doing the wrong thing is significant. Sounds like there are some big sticks, but are sticks the right motivator? Or is there something else? We'll come back to that. Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Commissioner Sarah Bolt told me about a common demotivator. One of the big things that I would say to organisations is that you cannot allow inconvenience to be an excuse for inaction. Tell me more about that. Well, often you'll find somebody, let's just say for argument's sake, that uh, somebody is in extremely good what their job is, but they're also incredibly badly behaved in relation to other colleagues. So... The inconvenience of finding someone to replace that person might sort of outweigh the need to take action to stop them behaving badly. But that just encourages poor behaviour to escalate and it's also completely avoiding the fact that you are, you are abetting unlawful action to carry on. And that's also unlawful under the legislation. So it's unlawful to, to knowingly allow some action to continue. So people shouldn't be untouchable. People shouldn't be untouchable. How common is it that they are? Well, I guess um, the Kate Jenkins report in the federal arena is a suggestion that for generations of politics, people have believed that they're untouchable because of their position. And hopefully that will start to change. So nobody is immune from the legislation. That's something that's also um, often a misunderstood thing that people believe that I'm in a certain position and so therefore the Act doesn't apply to me or the Act applies to everybody. It couldn't be clearer. So let there be no more misunderstandings because there is no more misgivings. Michael Bailey is the CEO of the Tasmanian Chamber of Commerce and Industry and along with Abby George, who we met earlier, they reckon this stuff is the worst of the worst. 
I think it's devastating for business to be found to have not acted uh, when they understood that a person or they feared that a person, um, you know, was acting improperly in any way, you know, whether that be, you know, financial management, whether, you know, whatever, but particularly in this space, you know, no person is that valuable to a business because firstly, you're only as good as your staff uh, and secondly, the reputational damage for your business if you don't deal with it will be immense and thirdly, it's the right thing to do. So. I've never come across a business that hasn't acted. Yeah, and I think um, that's certainly been my experience as well. It's it's been particularly when managers or, or owners have said something's not right. We we don't know what it is. Can you come and talk to our staff? That people have then opened up. That they've just been like, wow, I am horrified mm-hmm. that this has actually gone on. I thought there was something going on, but no one would talk to me about it but I had no idea they've acted in both of those instances um, we've terminated long-standing important you know employees because employers won't stand for it nor should they but no one was willing to stand up so I think too that comes down to education because you do have speed cameras in your workplace everywhere because you've got people and they are the ones that need to keep an eye out for everyone else. Yeah. Um, and often, I have no idea where it's come from, but people, I know people like black and white. And employment law, we're in all sorts of grey. We always are. That's where we live. People like to know, and, and they've got this idea that, well, it's three strikes and you're out, aren't you? You get three warnings, don't you? No, you don't. Um there is conduct that is so serious that it warrants instant dismissal and our law recognises that, Um, you know. And so what I often say to that is, well, if someone came up and, you know, hit you, would you say, have two more cracks before I do anything (laughs) about it? Um, You know, it's not this three strikes. It's serious. Let's do something about it. We can do something about it. So we need to, to protect the rest of our staff. Yeah, I think the thing with an investigation too is that, you know, Abby, that's why having someone like Abby do the investigation is so important. Someone who's external from the business has no blinkers on at all. And we don't have an onus of proof the same as court. Um, you know, what Abby needs to determine is whether it's likely that that has happened or not. And so she'll talk to a range of people in the business um, in a way that's, you know, fair and respectful, but to, to try and determine what's actually happened. And that's so important for people to realise that, you know, they can make sure they've got a safe workplace without needing to go to court, um, without needing to have, you know, videos or recordings or anything like that. Um, you know, just with, uh, firstly, you know, their their evidence, if you call it that, their story, and also the stories of people around them who quite often will corroborate what they're saying anyway, or they've had a similar experience. And that's the great thing about this sort of process. We can then act and get rid of that person from the business. And check, that's another consequence. It really feels like we're getting into the action now. And I wonder if you heard all of those doing words in there. Big ones. Instant dismissal. Investigation. And then we heard words like court speed cameras and evidence. Yeah, it's needed for whatever process is used to deal with a complaint of sexual harassment, whether it's with someone like Abby or someone like Henry. I think that what can be persuasive evidence is certainly evidence of an early complaint within an organisation. 
if conduct which is going which is going on in the workplace is inappropriate or is harassment, the best thing to do is to raise it in writing and make sure that you keep a copy of that complaint. Things like incident reports, um, things like copies of any correspondence. Um, often we will deal with situations where a person will recall text messages uh, and then unfortunately those text messages will be left on an old phone um, or will have been deleted, for instance, because the contents of them was distressing and the person didn't want them sitting there on their phone. Um, so in those situations, obviously any contemporaneous evidence uh, is really, really valuable. Um, any evidence of witnesses, any evidence of direct correspondence is probably the most valuable kind of evidence. But there's also a, a broader type of evidence which can be evidence of a of a tendency um, in a workplace or evidence of a culture, um, which can come from a number of number of people um, who may have observed the same kind of conduct, uh, who may have been victims of the same kind of conduct throughout a um, a certain period at a workplace. I gotta say, I'm wondering how many times through this season so far you've thought, well, it's not rocket science. Granted. I wonder how many times in this episode you've thought people could still get away with it. There seems to be one sure way to make sure they don't. Invest in speed cameras. Speed cameras? In the workplace? Really? No, <laughs> not really, but something better. Sometimes sexual harassment is a unique in the circumstances that it happens where there are no witnesses. The reason that it sort of allow, is allowed to go on is because people don't intervene. So bystander intervention is critical. Let's welcome back Anti-Discrimination Commissioner Sarah Bolt. It's now become fairly famously coined as an expression, but evil thrives in silence. So if people are silent to the actions that are happening around them, that and usually you can tell when someone's feeling uncomfortable. So when someone steps in and just sort of stands next to someone who's feeling uncomfortable, that acts as a barrier and then can prevent ongoing behaviours. So bystander intervention is, is really important. There'll be people listening now thinking, well, why didn't anyone say anything when this was happening to me? Why don't we do it? Um, apathy, I think, is a big thing. Uh, or it's none of my business it might be another reason. Or I might get caught up in the vortex of the whole thing and then my life might become sort of uncomfortable. But the thing, again, going back to the victimisation provisions of the legislation, they protect bystanders. So if you, if you just encourage somebody to lodge a complaint or if you just stand up for somebody to lodge a complaint and then something happens to you, the bystander, which is uncomfortable, then you can also bring a complaint of victimisation against the individual and if there's an, employ an employment circumstance against the owner of that business as well for the person who, if the person is an employee who has been sexually harassing somebody. I feel like I'm asking the same question again, but it, it sounds like the Act is kind of sorted. It's very clear, yet it still doesn't work. We still find it hard to, to stand up for others or to report what's happening to us. What, what, what's that about? I don't know. I think we're all guilty of it. So often we say nothing when we know we should out of sort of self-preservation. 
every now and then you sort of see things that go viral where somebody stands up for somebody who's, you know, the victim of a race of a racial sort of tirade on a public transport, you know, so that will, but it's rare because often people will just sit there, drop their eyes to their laps and pretend that they're not hearing it. So it does take courage to stand up for somebody else. Um, and it does take kindness to do that. And the more we can do it, and a lot of people, a lot of people do do it, but a lot of people clearly don't because otherwise we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Do you know which lot of people you're in? It's tricky to think that we might be the ones without the courage to take bystander action. And what about our leaders? Do we assume our leaders have the courage for this? There is a severe lack of courage in all of our leaders today, right? At, from um, government levels, corporate levels, public society levels, like there's a lot of courage missing in our society. And you're right, we bucket it as an assumption, um, but that is that is an inaccurate observation these days. Ouch. Some tough love from Emma Gibbons, who is all about love, actually. Emma is an expert in change, connection and inclusion and built her trade working on political campaigns right around the world. She knows about leaders and knows about asking for change. And in our next episode, she'll help us find the courage we need to have awkward conversations. But for now, let's just stick with preparing ourselves to be active bystanders. Particularly around this issue, there's a really interesting dialogue. The whole idea of public and private spaces and how domestic violence often happens in private spaces um, and sexual harassment happens in public and private spaces. And I wonder if there is difficulty in entering people's private spaces, right? And making change in those private spaces. Only those who are closest or are in those private spaces can really have any ability to influence. Um, if you've had these conversations with a friend who is feeling really disempowered, you know that there's there's little you can do except for build her confidence, support, listen. But in our public spaces, this is where we can start to model and fix some of these things. And and how do we again open up that vulnerability or that space and and model the inclusion and care that we want to see around this issue in our public spaces, at work, at the library, at the footy game. Modelling and standing up for people in those public spaces creates ripples in private spaces. Emma, what does that modelling sound like? The best thing you can do is let someone know that they are not alone. Um, Just standing with them is enough sometimes. I've had two um, interactions in the last year actually intervening, if you will. It was like a Friday night. I had just left my apartment. I was walking across the road and on the street corner, there was a person who was yelling at another person with a pram right um so they had there was a kid um this person was hunched over the pram and the other person was really aggressive and quite violent around them so i'm crossing the corner towards that corner because that's the direction i gotta go and as i get to the other side i stop i look the person who's hunched over the pram in the eye and said can i help you do you need help i see you you're not alone this is not happening in a void i'm not going to ignore you i'm not going to ignore this Unfortunately, the person who was very aggressive responded by getting right up in my face and saying, you better keep walking, keep walking. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I immediately, like, I'm walking away, but I'm pulling out my phone. I'm calling triple zero and, or 911, as we say in the States. I got to remember which emergency number. (laughs) Um, uh, And I'm calling them and they're like, yeah, we're aware of the situation. Someone's on the way. So great. So I immediately called the professionals, if you will. So I'm just thinking about how that might look or sound in a workplace situation. 
Um, Emma, is standing by them or checking in to say, I saw you were in there by yourself, are you okay? Is that is that how we do it? Yeah, well, and again, um, you don't want to... You don't want to project your own judgment in the situation or put your own opinion into it. Questions are the answer. How are you? How can I help? What do you need? Um, what happened? Do you want to talk about it? Um, can I do anything to support you right now? Would you like a cup of tea? Right? Like I get very awkward sometimes in deeply emotional situations. So I'm like, what's a practical action I can make? Do you want a tea or water? Do you need a liquid? Let me help get something. Yeah, I can do that. Let me do that little thing. <laughs> and that, you know, but questions are the answer, right? And don't, don't put your own judgment in the situation. Cause I think some people go into these and they're like, um, oh, I just saw that. Did this happen? Da, 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 da. What do you reckon? Oh, yeah. You know, and even that's a question, I suppose, but they, they put a lot of heat and their own judgments of the situation towards the person which is really overwhelming if you're already in a uh, in a in a situation are you getting a few ideas ways that you could be a speed camera an active bystander to sexual harassment we could talk about bystander action for a whole season and actually we have the second season of rule of thumb went deep on this And we learned that sometimes getting the courage to intervene is about having done some thinking about the words that you can say and the things that you can do that will help. We need ways to diffuse a conversation, maybe by rolling our eyes, shaking our heads or making a lighthearted comment to move the conversation on. We need ways to check in with the person who's being targeted by the harassment by standing with them or asking how we can help. We need ways to call out disrespectful behaviour, such as saying, knock it off, or talking to the disrespectful person in private. And we need ways to report it through contact offices, peer support networks, and formal reporting systems. And in episode four, we'll really double down on how to have some of those tricky conversations well. Now we've done an awful lot of talking about the stick in this episode. The law, the speed cameras, the systems in place that will catch people out. Tom Windsor, who we met earlier, reckons there's another motivator for change. Something that I've found in the work that we've done regarding change in behaviours towards mental health um, is that we've had a lot more success providing carrots, if you like, rather than sticks. Uh, We haven't come out and said, you you, you know, you shouldn't be open about talking about your mental health because something bad might happen to you. Um, We've come out and said, you should talk about your mental health with others and share it with others because of the positive impacts um, that it can have on your life and, and, and on others and those around you. So in the context of sexual harassment, what do you think the carrot could be? Uh, A carrot that would help people who perhaps do use this sort of harmful behaviour would respond to? Yeah, I I think um, one of the greatest carrots that we can promote is for a safer, happier and and healthier community. If we can educate uh, people to understand that there is some harm to their behaviour and that if you change that behaviour, you can minimise harm and therefore the carrot being a happier and healthier workplace, a happier and healthy footy club, a happier and healthy community where your wife, your sister, your girlfriend, your your partner, your your auntie, <laughs> your cousins feel feel more safe and, and are happier um, in going about their lives. And I, I think that that's 
going to be one of the, the strongest ways to change behaviours. Less stick and more carrot. If you're thinking, how do we change a whole culture with a carrot? Yeah, this is big and complicated and we're going in for a hard tackle on that. In our next episode, we're going to get tactics for tackling the awkward conversation. It can be awkward talking about these these types of issues with other men. The lunchtime banter doesn't necessarily allow for these sorts of conversations without you being a little bit of a weirdo or an outcast. And that's where I think we've got a lot of work to do. Join me next episode and let's do the work. Right now, you can check out our show notes, download the resources about bystander action and stick them up in your workplace. Take them to your next board meeting. But more important than ever, share this podcast with someone else. Write a review or give us a rating. Anything that will help more people to listen. My name is Penny Terry and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. This project was funded by the Tasmanian Government through the Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.